Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 18. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you, and you'll answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, and who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its door, doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you Seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And the answer to all those questions is no. No, I was not. I was not there. I did not stretch that measuring line. I did not lay the foundations of the earth. We are coming to our end on the book of Job. I spent three weeks in it where I took a representation of, well, first we learned about what happened to Job. Second, we got a little snapshot of the kinds of things his friend said to him. Now we get to see God respond. So hardly justice to 42 chapters. But I know what would happen if I spent 42 weeks on the book of Job, which would put us from now until June. Yeah, I know. I'd be preaching to an empty church, which is um, an ongoing nightmare of mine, coincidentally. But the, so what are some thoughts? So in this three-week series, at the beginning we saw in chapter 1, Everything that happened to Job, everything that was taken from him in three different dramatic acts that took and killed his ten children, destroyed his home, and took away all of his wealth, leaving him with nothing. In one act, one moment, all, everything taken from him. And we learn at the beginning that Job is righteous. One of the things I said two weeks ago is, you have to remember as the book goes on, Job is righteous, and this is not happening to him as a result of his sin. You have to hold that, especially when his two friends take the stage. So chapter one, we learned, one, Job is righteous, and God trusts Job, and Job trusts God. There's a mutual relationship there where God is staking his very reputation on Job's ability to withstand the most devastating losses possible, and in the end still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we saw that at the end of chapter one. Everything happened, everything was taken. He begins the process of grief and mourning, shaves his head, tears his robe, worships God. That's how it begins. 
And then, last week, we met Elihu. Elihu? Elihu. Never mind. Um, the most formidable of Job's accusers. He had four different accusers. Elihu was by far the most formidable. He presented Job with a formula that he did not consider could be wrong. One, God controls everything. If something happens, we know by definition it's God's will because it happens. Nothing happens apart from God's direct will. And I suggested last week, God did not kill Job's kids. That was not from God's hand. And Job 1 tells us God did not kill Job's children. Two, God is just, which means he does everything. He does everything perfectly. Therefore, the conclusion to his little formula that explains and encompasses everything in life, from the worst news you could hear to why you, you could not find a parking lot this morning, that every, big or small, everything is God's retribution for your sin. In fact, that's what John Walton, great, I know if asked who the greatest Old Testament scholar is, I know Walter Brueggemann's the answer. But for me, John Walton's my guy. I've read almost everything he's written. He is a uh, professor, head of the Bible department at Wheaton. Um, and he, sa- he calls this what Elihu embodies and his, and his other friends embody, the retribution principle. And he says that dominates human history. It's no mistake that this is in the oldest book of Scripture to be written. That the idea that everything happens because of retributive God who's giving you exactly what you deserve. All of suffering is God's retribution for our sinfulness. Is it, is it a system that is logically sound? It is logically sound. There's no flaw in it. Is it a system that is big enough to explain everything that happens in the universe? It is not. That's its flaw. That while you can explain everything, you can try to logic your way out of somebody who believes these things, you won't be able to do it. It's logically impenetrable. The problem is it's too small a story to fit in all of reality. It is a neat and clean system that lacks the fear of God. There is no fear of God in a system that I can understand and comprehend. It's the opposite. It's a claim to understand the mind of God and to know the vast complexity of how things happen and come into being. So now, we have what befell of Job. We have all the different explanations of why this is happening to him, all of which blame Job for what happened. And then God speaks. He has some questions for Job. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Who stops the sea? Who brings the dawn each morning. These are rhetorical questions that remind Job who is God and who is not. Now, what is the main message in the book of Job? We're at week three. This is it. We, have, we need to come to some resolution here. What is the book of Job teaching us? What's its purpose in the canon, the witness of Scripture? Is it to answer the question of why there is so much suffering in the world? The answer to that, as firmly as I can say, is no. That is not the book of Job. The book of Job is not to understand why we suffer. As George Bernard Shaw once wrote in his book on Job, if I complain about suffering unjustly, 
It is no answer to say to me, can you make a hippopotamus? Let me suggest that that's true. If that's, the book, if that's the message of the book of Job, to resolve once and for all why bad things happen, then can you make a hippopotamus is certainly not an answer to that question. Nor is God's response a, an answer to that question. Um, it is the wrong question. It is not what Job is about. God at no point defends himself, explains himself, or give a, even the slightest nod or hint to why bad things happen. It's not a question that God feels any obligation to answer to us. Now, it does feel like victims deserve to know why bad things are happening. Isn't it fair to say that the question of why is, is important to us as people, particularly those who suffer unjustly? So why is it that the universe is made in such a way. And, but as the book moves on, as this question is wrestled with, is answered by his accusers, as they each step to the plate and answer it, one after one, they increase Job's suffering. They make things worse. Generally speaking, when we try to explain to a person's suffering why they're suffering, we add to their suffering. We may, our intentions may be good, we may be wanting to end their suffering or, or bring some perspective to it. But whenever we create a system of explaining that ends up in blaming, in any way, we only increase the suffering. By blaming victims, by blaming Job, by saying things happen in such a way because of some retribution formula, then there's no space for grace, mercy. It's only a relentless cycle of people getting what they deserve. And be careful. Jesus himself said this. Be careful about your systems that explain why others suffer because whatever ruler you are to measure who deserves what will be used against you. And do you really want to stand in a place and say, I had a perfectly cohesive morality that, um, that caused me to condemn others rightly? Be careful, Jesus says. That is a game. That's a third rail not to touch. It seems like this book is leading us to the right answer. It seems as this question has haunted every page. Why is Job suffering? As each person steps to the plate to, to take a swing at it. Um, they, it feels like, okay, we get it. Nobody knows. But now God's here. Now God can explain it. Now God can step up to the microphone, tap it, and say, is this thing on? Okay, let me tell you what's really going on. Let me solve this riddle, this mystery. But to understand the book of Job, you just have to let go of that question. The question of why. You have to let it go. Every single person that tries to answer it makes it worse for Job. And when God steps to the plate, he doesn't answer it. He doesn't make any hint over answering it. It's a question that is unresolved in the book of Job. And by God's response, you would say, ought to remain unresolved for us. That there's something else that God wants us to see about the beauty, the mystery of life, of God's role in ongoing creation that is still happening, and us surrendering to his wisdom. That as he says, I wasn't there. I mean, it's a good reminder I, that I'm not God. I'm, why do I think I could run things better than him? Um, God takes us back to creation. I think this is important. Um, when God created... He didn't create as we often think about it, at least, 
I mean, he did, but in the way that Scripture tells us it created, it's the earth was shapeless and void of life. That there's already an earth, and God's Spirit's hovering over the waters, and he, and he says, man, this place has potential. So what does he do? He begins the act of separating. He separates the earth from the sky, the heavens and the earth. He names them. He's bringing them. This is, by the way, this is also all John Walton, <laughs> is these ideas of creation, of creating, separating earth and sea, calling a boundary, naming them. This is all the act of naming is an act of declaring a purpose for each of these spaces. In the first three days, he's separating, creating the capacity for life to flourish. And then what does he do the next three days? He creates a world full of life. So what God does with Job is takes back to creation and by implication saying, I'm still creating. That the one who created the universe, the one who is there, the one who has seen the gates of death, the one who does cause the sun to come up every morning, the one who does tell the waves, stop, that's far enough, is the one who is still creating. That this matches the way that Genesis describes creation, the way that God describes it in Job, matches, it actually matches the science. That there is, as the world is moving from disorder to order, as there are proteins forming into life, the idea that proteins move from a goo to us over time, when all the universe seems to be losing energy, things fall apart, they decay, they move uh, from order to disorder, how does life flourish? I was in there talking about, I was in my notes. This is, this is me talking about me writing notes for today. So prepare for the fourth wall to be shattered right here. Is, uh, as I was writing them, I, I wrote in there that, that our noses can detect billions of different smells. And I thought, that seems like a lot. I'm going to fact check it. Guess what? Over a trillion different smells. Many of them are a curse more than a blessing. I, I don't know if you've... Um, you know, I, 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 I hear a baby and I remember, I'm reminded of some of the smells that babies can produce. Um, some newborns, delicious, wonderful, uh, awesome. Uh, others, not so much. Um, that the idea that we, that's, that God is moving us towards greater complexity, greater ability to appreciate the smells, the sights of this world, the way that we don't fully understand how, uh, I, I, I was reading a, a, a book on science and somebody was saying, Imagine somebody holding a cup of coffee with some logo on it. You can smell the coffee. You can see them. They throw a ball at you. You catch the ball. You take this all in. Science can't explain how a brain is able to do all those things at the same time. Um, I was reading about AI, and they're saying, you know, humans have been using AI from the beginning of time. Whenever someone dies, we still carry their voice with us we still have some sense of what they would say in certain circumstances. That's all AI is, is something that we've been doing since the beginning of time. How is it that we live in a life so full, full of beauty and wonder and new experiences, each day new on its own? And yet, we suffer. There's so much suffering in the world. And what God is saying, what I'm doing is moving things from disorder and chaos into spaces of order. I'm still creating. I'm still bringing order. It's as if God said to Job, did you think I was done? Did you think I only worked six days and then stopped? 
As Jesus reminds us, no, my Father is always at work. Doing what? What's he doing? In Job 1, Satan was given permission to take from Job. God placed limits on what he was able to do. We might call those limits that separation from order and disorder, mercy. You can only take so much. You can only go so far. And by the way, Job will be faithful through this all. I will create through your disorder something new, something that can only come through suffering. The first reading that we have, and the first time I read it, when I always read it, it's, I'm God, you're not. It's kind of the, the ultimate, because I'm your father and I said so, kind of moment in there. And, you know, that, that's there for sure. I think they're, they're a good reminder of God's authority, of who he is, is a, is, a, is a good starting point. In fact, that was the beginning of this teaching series, is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So that's where it begins, that, that fear of God. You think you can do better than me? That's kind of later in his speech. I would love, you know, do you think you could run the world better than me? Um, an invitation or try. And this is the climactic moment of the book of Job, where all the loose threads are coming to the resolution as God finally speaks. And it takes a sharp departure from what the reader expects. We've been led to believe from the beginning that this question of why will finally be resolved by the end of this book. And as each of, their friend, each of Job's friends flounder, unable to answer it, finally God comes and you think, finally, we're going to get our answer. And it takes a left turn. Seems like this, this book, essentially, God's on trial here. God is, all that Job's friends are, are basically unwelcome uh, people giving a witness of God. They, they're on the stand, well, God must be doing this. He must be operating this way. And God's like, this is who you brought to defend me, these, these guys on there. One of the interesting things that, um, as I was uh, hearing something from Tim Keller that uh, is on an Instagram account I follow. He's talking about how, you know, in the book of Job, Job's the only one who ever prays. Everyone else talks about God. Job talks to God. And in a lot of the Job's prayers is lament. Why am I this way? Why? I wish I'd ever been born. Um, it's just a lot of really dark, hard prayers that, if we're honest, reflect our own prayer life. And his reminder is, any Thought, feeling is safe when it's brought to God. Um, and by um, inference, you could say, defending God without his consultation is generally bad ground to stand on. Um, so here it comes. We're expecting an answer. Finally, God's going to dignify us with an answer of why we suffer so much. Finally, we've, God's going to stand before and, and defend himself. He is in the dock. Uh, as C.S. Lewis once wrote in one of his essays, God's in the dock. We think we have a right to put him on trial. We think we know better than he does. And to our shock and surprise, he instead asks, well, can you make a hippopotamus? That's not literal. That's George Bernard Shaw reference. But essentially, that's what he does. Were you there? Can you, can you do what I can do? He doesn't answer the question, but he does interrogate whether or not we're in a position to ask it, whether or not we're in a position to have a better model. Um, if we are in a position to drop little notes into God's suggestion box in the sky, how he could be doing things a little bit better. He calls us to that to remind us of our limitations and to remind us 
your limitations are not sinful. Limitations are what make us human. Limitations, when we stand before God and we respond, we are very aware of our limitations. And that those aren't a threat to God, those are fine. But not acknowledging those limitations and, and overreaching um, is part of the problem of the book of Job. Behind the question is the assumption that we have some ability to explain the cause effect in the universe. When it's a question we need to stop asking and let go of. And instead, start trusting God. The world is not just. The world is not fair. But God is bringing justice into the world. And the places that are coming under his creation, his power, his sovereign control, there is suffering. That God, in bringing new things into the world, does it through redeeming our suffering. Suffering that leads to new creation. When we suffer, God is bringing something new into the world. We look backwards of why things are happening. We don't know. When we look forward with anticipation, we can begin to see the new things God is doing through suffering. Um, Paul talked about suffering as childbirth. Uh, Galatians 4, 19 says this, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. I am in the pains of childbirth. I've never had child, never given birth. Um, but I have borne witness to the suffering. When my firstborn Jacqueline was born almost 19 years ago, February 25th, 2005, um, Lindsay had back labor, which I didn't know about, and that was a thing, but it's when the baby should be sunny side up, but they're sunny side down, and the forehead pushes against the back of the hip. Causes, there's, a, there's a whole cluster of, of nerves right here, and Jack's head was up against it. She was on Pitocin, which, is, which meant baby's big, body's not ready to give birth yet, so we're going to put this chemical into her body to start. So it was, I, I likened it, and I, you know, I wasn't my pain, my suffering, but it sounded like uh, essentially a battering ram over and over again and, until her cervix opened up. And she had an OBGYN, OBGYN, an OB, we'll just say OB moving forward, you know what I'm talking about, and um, who did not believe in, in giving uh, any, any narcotics or epidural until eight centimeters. When she told that to another OB, the OB looked at me and said, no offense, and then looked at her, but was your OB a man? And he said, yes. And she said, men just don't have categories for what women go through in birth. Um, and I say, like I said, I'm limited Whenever I confess my limitations, it's generally a good thing, and I do not know or understand the pain of childbirth. But I do know it's gone when the baby's born. I do know the moment the mother holds the baby and the child, all the pain is forgotten, and it's gone. Because that's what the pain was for. It was for bringing something new into the world. And when that new person is born, safe and healthy, the pain is forgotten. It's a pain that had a purpose to it. And that purpose was bringing something new into the world. And that's the pattern we find, is through suffering comes something new into the world. That's when the suffering of Christ came, that's how the kingdom came to us. Christ's suffering brought the kingdom. Christ's death brought the resurrection. The pattern that we find in the New Testament 
is pain and suffering leading to redemption, leading to new creation. And when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, what he's saying to us is, suffer like I did. Suffer in a way that brings through your faithfulness something new into the world. Trust God through your suffering so that his plans can be made right. For God is always at work. He is always bringing good to those who are faithful. So be faithful. N.T. writes that Christians aren't pessimists or optimists. We are hopefulists. When we look into the future, we're not guessing as an optimist or a pessimist what it might be. We're hopeful that whatever it is, God will bring new creation in and through it, that it will expand and grow his kingdom. When we look forward with anticipation and watchfulness and wakefulness for what new thing will God bring into the world? We wait as ones knowing even death has lost its sting, that there, like Job was the hedge around him that God established, so too is Christ put an even greater hedge that says even death is not the end. That's why questions that look backwards are the wrong question. But questions that look forward, what new thing will God bring in through it? So much so that Paul almost wants to say, suffering is good because of what it produces. Maybe that's why the church has always grown strongest and best and most flourished among the poor and the oppressed. Perhaps those who need hope find it. Perhaps that is why for you, your moments of the most profound change always came after suffering. That in and through the challenges and the difficulties, something new was formed in you. Do you want to go back and live those days again? No. But would you give up those days for the fruit it produced and the person it produced in you and the good that God did in and through it? Well, we don't have a choice, which is part of the message of the book of Job. Our choice is to trust God or to not. To believe in the new things, the new creation that he's doing. Um, so let us consider Christ, who is the author, the perfecter of our faith, who endured suffering at the hands of wicked men for the joy set before him that he might bring something new into the world. May you let go of the why question and instead find God. And come to the table this morning where suffering has already been transformed into resurrection, where new creation is already waiting for us at the table. And as you come to your seat, consider what it means to let go of the why question and instead replace it with the word, I will trust you, Lord, even in this. Not in the answers, not in the demands of why, but simply in trusting and anticipating the good that will come out of it. Let me pray for us as we come to the table. Fathers, we come to the table this morning. May we learn to trust you. Thank you for the book of Job and the questions it raises and doesn't answer. Help us to find you amidst the storm. And may we ultimately look to your son Jesus as the author and the protector of our faith. For he endured greater suffering than we ever will. At the hands of evil men. That he might bring the kingdom. May we consider him who suffered such great loss with joy that we too may find that joy and purpose, just as a mother endures pain to welcome her child into the world. So too may we endure pain knowing that you're bringing something new to us and to the world. We ask for the mercy and grace we need for this in Christ's name.